Progressive covers pets in our auto policy at no extra charge. Now, let's see what your dog has to say. As a dog, I think Progressive's auto pet policy is... Oh, what is that? That's just my tail. <laughs> Weird. Anyway, Progressive protects... There it is again. See? This is why I need protection. I'm so distracted. Nope, that is still my tail. Progressive Auto Insurance covers pets for up to $1,000 in a car accident at no extra charge. And we think your dog would say that's great, too. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Coverage for cats and dogs included with the purchase of collision coverage and subject to policy terms. Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. Well, controversial Supreme Court decisions about affirmative action announced earlier today, big tech, social media, and the First Amendment are decided this summer. Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus President and Fellows of Harvard College was determined if uh, institutions of higher education can or cannot use race as a factor of admissions. That's been announced, but there are others that are still pending. Well, the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court by John Yu and Robert Delahunty is a go-to guide to breaking down everything you need to know about the Supreme Court of the United States, or SCOTUS, past and present, to be an informed American. Written by law professors devoted to defending the Constitution, readers gain trustworthy expertise to make sense of the modern-day madness. Well, since the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court has been massively misunderstood by the mainstream media, deliberately or out of ignorance. We'll leave that an open question. The court is returning to a firm constitutional ground and using facts to challenge the mainstream dominant view of the law. John Yu, a professor of law at UC Berkeley, and Robert J. Delahunty, a fellow at Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life. They lay out why justices must defend the Constitution, how the Supreme Court became central to American politics, and how the court can either save the republic or jeopardize the entire legislative process. Well, here to talk to us about this uh, new volume is Robert Delahunty, again, a fellow of the, at the Claremont Institute Center for the American Way of Life in Washington, D.C. He um, held the Lejeune Chair of Law at the University of St. Thomas Law School in Minneapolis until his retirement and has published widely in constitutional law. He served in the U.S. Department of Justice for 17 years, was deputy general counsel in the White House, of the Homeland Security. He lives in southwestern Utah, but today we have him by phone to talk about the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us today of all days. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And yes, it is a big day. It is a big day. I'm an African-American. and I'm rejoicing that the decision was made because it levels the playing field. And I have enough confidence in minorities across the country to believe that we can aspire to and uh, attain uh, education and other positions without uh, what uh, affirmative action has provided, and that is an unlevel playing field. Your thoughts on this decision? Were you surprised, and do you think it was the right decision? Uh, no, I was not surprised. I'm very grateful that it turned out the way it did. And yes, I think it is unquestionably the right decision. Uh, and it is also one I completely agree with you, that African Americans and all Americans should rejoice in. And the country's greatest figure, in my opinion, greatest public figure is Justice Clarence Thomas, who is an African-American who grew up in the segregated South in Georgia and who wrote a special concurring opinion of his own in this case, in which he recalled his background in the segregated South as a, a youngster and as a young man. And he made exactly the point you have just made. 
interestingly, what I'm hearing among many of the talking heads is, well, he benefited from affirmative action. Therefore, it's a, a, a law, a position that should be retained. It, it's a bit wearying to hear that as sort of an excuse. Well, he could not have succeeded on his own, that every minority in this country really stands on the back of affirmative action, which, uh, again, is somewhat insulting in that the presumption is you couldn't have done it uh, without it. Y- your thoughts on that? Yes, you know, I, I agree with you. It is insulting. It is condescending. Um, National Public Radio uh, some years ago had a fascinating film, uh, an interview, an extended interview with Justice Thomas. Uh, and this is a man of remarkable gifts and drive and determination and stamina. And he would have gone to the top at any time in any place. Um, and uh, no, he is not. He is not a beneficiary of affirmative action. Um, he is the beneficiary of his God-given talents, which he developed to the full. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the the politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. This is intended to help us better understand this third branch of government in light of the kind of uh, criticism and uh, changes that are being suggested around the culture when the Supreme Court doesn't rule in the way that some segments of the population would like it to. Why the um, uh, politically incorrect um, uh, title to this book in, in terms of helping us understand the Supreme Court in the 21st century? Well, it's part of a series called the Politically Incorrect Guides, which is published by Regnery. They needed one for the Supreme Court. And about a year ago, my friend and colleague, John Yu, and I decided we would like to fill that slot. We would like to write a book about the Supreme Court. Um, both of us have considerable expertise in this matter. John, at least, is one of the country's leading constitutional law scholars. Uh, we've both written about the Constitution extensively. Uh, we've both practiced for years in the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, and we wanted to defend the Supreme Court, the new Supreme Court, with a, a conservative majority, thanks to the former president. Uh, Donald Trump's three new appointments. We wanted to defend the court. We wanted to defend its vision of the law. Uh, We wanted to explain some of its inner workings. We wanted to make it more intelligible and comprehensible. And truly, uh, we wanted to rebut some of the unwarranted criticism uh, of its decisions. Of its decisions Uh, and of particular members. That's the purpose of the book. Yeah, yeah. And of particular members, yes. That wasn't quite as acute or extreme a year ago as it is now, but yes. Uh, We want to defend them from, I mean, from events like, uh, you know, Senator Schumer standing on the steps of the Supreme Court during an oral argument in the case and threatening justices by name in front of a mob. This is a disgraceful performance, disgraceful for the Senate uh, majority leader. It certainly uh, certainly is. Now, you referred to the court as conservative. Um, and can you explain uh, the the two different views of how to interpret the Constitution, the originalists and those who believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document that can essentially be interpreted to mean whatever the times suggest? Yes, that's a really a great and fundamental question. Let me make clear right at the start. Um, for To speak about a conservative court doesn't mean to speak about a court that is politically mm-hmm. conservative. It's talking about a court that has a view of the law. That is conservative. And one of the great efforts of the current court is to separate and distinguish politics from law. Okay, Uh, many of its critics confound that distinction. Um, But the court is as often concerned with who has the right under the Constitution to make a policy call as it is with the question, what should the policy call be? 
Okay. Sometimes the court itself is the final decision maker, but sometimes it says it isn't. The voters are, or Congress is, or the states are, or whatever. That's a very fundamental distinction. So when you read things that say the court has come out a year ago uh, against abortion, that is false and misleading. The court did not take a position on abortion. It was not, it did not claim to be the final decision maker. It said the decision about abortion policy is not committed to us. It's committed to the people of the states and the state legislatures, or maybe to the federal Congress. We are not the right decision maker. And we're going to stop pretending that we are. Or let me give you another example. I know you've asked about the living constitution. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but a very simple example from this term. The state of California, uh, in a referendum, decided to ban the sale of pork in its grocery stores and supermarkets unless the pork was humanely bred and raised, the pigs. And they were sued by out-of-state uh, pork producers, probably mostly in Iowa, where uh, it's an important industry. And the question comes up to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court is not ruling on the merits or demerits of an animal uh, welfare law or on consumer protection. The question is, who makes this decision? Do we make it, we the court, or do the voters of California? And it said it's the latter. It's the voters of California. This is not a decision for us. They did not express a view about the wisdom of this animal welfare law. They just said, we are not the right decision makers. The state is. Now, as to your question about the living constitution, there are, in, in fact, two views, two dominant views about how to interpret the constitution. One of them says, this is called originalism. One of them says, go back to the original meaning that the language in the Constitution had at the time it was adopted in 1787 or maybe after the Civil War. The main parts of the Constitution came in those two eras. Go back to the original public meaning, which was debated publicly at the time and discussed vigorously at the time. And that is the meaning that those words have now. Okay, that is how you understand it. Um, and if that's been the law, and there are ways of changing the law if the people wish to have it changed, but they haven't done that with the parts of the Constitution we're talking about. They could amend the Constitution, but let's say they haven't. Okay? Then you read those words in the original public meaning that they had when they were adopted and ratified into law. The other view of the Constitution uh, stems from political progressivism. It's the idea that the Constitution is very flexible, very organic. It grows, it changes, its meaning shifts with time. And ultimately, this is a formula for rule by the courts, as distinct from rule by the people. And that's a very dangerous idea, it seems to me. It's also a self-defeating idea. I mean, let's take abortion. Uh, the Roe versus Wade decision um, saying that there is a constitutional right to abortion came down maybe 45 or 50 years ago in 1973. That's roughly half a century ago. Who is to say that the Constitution hasn't lived since then to the point where Roe versus Wade has to be rolled back? Maybe the fear in the 1970s was overpopulation. Maybe now there's a fear of underpopulation or, or, or the failure to reproduce. Um, and so the court should 
um, make the Constitution live and breathe and it requires reversing row. It's a self-defeating view, the living constitutional view of the Constitution. It gives the judges a free hand to make policy. And they're not policymakers. They're lawyers. You made a, a, a reference to um, Dick Schumer a few moments ago. The president today, uh, in referring to the decision made on affirmative action by the Supreme Court, said this is not the last word, which, of course, it is. Um, has the, the court been politicized uh, at least um, recently? And the expectation is that in the absence of uh, legislative will, that oftentimes things are left for the courts to make decisions that politicians don't have the uh, the guts to make. How have we come to misunderstand and misinterpret the role of the Supreme Court in the separation of powers in terms of interpreting the Constitution rather than affirming the direction the country might go on a political uh, standpoint? Well, the court has been politicized, but it's been politicized largely by the media. And I'm sorry to say by one of our two great parties, the Democratic Party, Uh, the court is trying honestly and conscientiously to interpret the law in a fair and nonpartisan way. And look, some of its decisions in recent days have demonstrated that. Uh, It has handed down decisions in a case, for example, from North Carolina, the so-called independent legislature theory, that is at least widely perceived to be inimical to the interests of the Republican Party in the next presidential election. It's handed down a decision from Alabama uh, in a Voting Rights Act case uh, that Uh, is at least commonly understood to be inimical to the interests of the Alabama Republican Party. Um, It's handed down a decision about immigration control at the border in which it refused even to hear a suit brought against the Biden administration by the state of Texas. So the court is trying to uh, go straight down the line and to disregard political differences. I'm afraid it's people like President Biden who are politicizing these issues. Um, You also mentioned that uh, there's a kind of pass-the-buck view. It's quite prevalent, I'm sorry to say, in the Biden administration, which, um, you know, it it, um, tries to make up the law on its own without proper reference to Congress, without reliance on congressional authorization. And then when the court strikes down what the administration has done, it finds fault with the court. The court is not setting policy, for example, about Um, vaccinations. Uh, It's not setting policy about moratoria on evicting tenants uh, during COVID. That's not its job. It's, 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 It's saying you can have any policy on these matters you want, but you have to have congressional support for it. Otherwise, why have a Congress? And, you know, sometimes these uh, administrative and executive decisions are made with a view to ducking a responsibility. The language of a statute is written so vaguely that it can be interpreted in different ways. And members of Congress running for re-election can say, well, don't blame me uh, if this injures your interests or your property. This is how the bureaucracy interpreted it. And the court is trying to monitor that kind of behavior, too, and to make Congress step up to the plate and write laws that are clear and make tough policy calls. I I think this is praiseworthy, laudable. Yeah, yeah. We tend to think of the the current sitting Supreme Court. How important is is it for us to understand the Supreme Court, what its constitutional role is, uh, again, with the, in mind, the separation of powers? 
uh, understanding the history of the court, decisions that were made, decisions that were overturned? Uh, Well, the the framers of our country distilled really centuries of experience um, in uh, Great Britain and here uh, before the revolution and then after in the States. Uh, And they created a government of three branches, and they were supposed to be equal to each other, and they had different functions and they had different prerogatives. And one of the three, probably the least understood by the general public, is the judicial branch. Uh, And it was supposed the executive uh, and certainly Congress were not supposed to be able to apply the law directly to the people. Um, It had to go through the judicial branch and the judicial branch had the right to um, to reject a law if it did not square up with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And this has been essential to preserving uh, American liberty, individual liberty for over two centuries and to bring about the enormous prosperity that this country enjoys because there are rights. Uh, The courts will protect your property rights as well as your other civil rights. Um, So judicial independence and the ability of a court to act fearlessly uh, without political pressure, without fear of intimidation or recrimination, that's essential to American freedoms. Justice Scalia used to say what is more important even than the Bill of Rights than individual guarantees of individual rights is the structure of our federal union. And the court is an essential, indispensable part of the structure of our government. It's one of the three branches. And it has to be independent of political influence from Biden or Schumer or anybody else, Donald Trump, whoever it may be. It has to be independent of them all uh, so that all of our freedoms are protected. You um, outline in the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court um, an overrule wish list. What are some of the top cases you'd like to see corrected? So when the the book was finished, um, uh, the court had not, of course, decided the case that came down today. Uh, but certainly we were hoping that it would reverse course on affirmative action in higher education. And it has done that. And that is a major Um, decision. You know, it's interesting when you uh, think about affirmative action, the court has prohibited it to both the state and federal governments in every area of society except one, higher education. That was a carve-out. That was treated differently. But, for example, in giving uh, broadcasting licenses or other federal benefits, uh, the government had to act in a race neutral way. It couldn't look at your race and decide to tilt the scales in your favor. The exception was higher education. That exception has been closed today. And that is something, as we were saying right at the start, um, that is, uh, I think, a very welcome um, development to all Americans because it it underscores the fact that in this country, in this country, we have one race, and that's American. That's how you're judged by the law. How significant was the the information leak prior to the overturn of Roe versus Wade and the danger posed to individual members of the Supreme Court? It was a shattering thing. It was a shameful thing to have done. Uh, it is dismaying and it is to me incomprehensible why they have not yet discovered mm-hmm. the leaker. Um, uh, and maybe they have and choose not to reveal who it was for, again, who knows what reason. Um, But Justice uh, Justice Alito said something very interesting a while ago, a 
about the leak. He said two things. Um, he said, first of all, um, he thinks he knows who did it, but he said, I don't have sufficient evidence um, to give me the confidence in identifying someone um, that I would need to go public. Um, so he has a, you know, reasonable suspicions. Uh, he thinks he knows who it is, but uh, very circumspectly, he will not finger anybody. Um, but it may be that the leaker is not. And then the second thing he says is that it was outrageous that he and people, other justices on the court, conservative justices, were accused of leaking it. Uh, and he said, why would we ever have <laughs> done that? Mm -hmm. Because it put our lives in danger. And why would we have been so foolish as to do that? And, you know, their lives were in danger. There were uh, demonstrations and protests outside their homes. And there was an assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh. And to its shame, the U.S. Department of Justice, where I worked for 17 years, uh, did not enforce the federal law that says that the justices are entitled to protection in their homes. Um, so uh, the whole process of uh, the pushback against the Dobbs case, it, it was outrageous. It really was. The lives of the justices were at risk. Uh, the leak uh, has never been, um, uh, the source of it has never been identified. Uh, and, and the whole thing has, I think, sown dissension and mistrust in the court itself. We need to have a, a functioning uh, Supreme Court with the justices, despite their disagreements, can get along as colleagues. Let me ask you what you think the future of the court looks like with regard to religious business owners as another decision that we're awaiting a, a final um, announcement on as, uh, as it relates to LGBT celebrations to violate the beliefs of artists and communicators, for example. Uh, that's a decision that did originate as a, a question of um, religious rights. Uh, but the Supreme Court, for whatever reason, has decided to sever the religion side of the case and make it a free speech case. So it will not directly implicate um, the right of uh, uh, the owner of a firm, a small firm, to decline to do um, web designs for same-sex weddings um, because of her religious faith. Uh, what's at issue right now is the narrower question of her First Amendment free speech rights to express or choose not to express um, certain themes in her art or in her web designing. There is a major uh, religion case decided today. It's kind of been cast in the shadow mm -hmm. by the Harvard decision, but it is about religious rights in the workplace. And the court unanimously, it must be said, struck a blow in favor of religious believers by saying that uh, their employers have a legal obligation to accommodate their beliefs uh, and um, even if it's a substantial cost to the employers to make um, those arrangements. So, you know, if your um, your employer feeds you lunch and you're Jewish or Muslim uh, and it only offers pork, it's got to offer you an alternative to pork. Uh, if you're a Muslim, it has to, uh, unless it's a really substantial cost to the business, allow you to pray regularly several times during the workday and so on. This was a case involving a Christian who wanted worked in the post office who wanted to practice his faith on Sunday and couldn't because of post office demands. Well, even if it is a substantial cost to the post office, it has to make an accommodation for that 
uh, religious believer. That's an important decision. What about the future of uh, gun control? Um, Well, um, there are now three decisions uh, going back to 2008 that affirm that the Second Amendment to the Constitution, part of the Bill of Rights, which protects the right of the people to keep and bear arms, that that is meaningful. It will be enforced. It is not an orphan. It stands on the same level as freedom of speech or freedom of religion or any of the other items in the Bill of Rights. Uh, And the court is saying uh, gun control, reasonable gun control regulation is, of course, permitted, um, but um, a wholesale clampdown on the use, on the possession or or carriage of weapons, that is not possible. For example, you can regulate, the state can regulate guns so that you can't carry them into a courtroom, but it can't say the whole island of Manhattan, you can't carry a gun, right? There's, it's got to be a reasonable um, restriction based on actually historical customary practice about gun, gun control. What do you think about the criticism of Justice Thomas and other justices for failing to report gifts from wealthy friends? Is this an ethics violation or is this just another effort to undermine uh, the uh, integrity and reputation of members of the court? It's the latter. Uh, it's transparently the latter because tell me the rule the ethics rule that they are supposed to have violated. And I'm not the only one to ask that. Professor Stephen Carter, who's a liberal Democrat professor at the Yale School of Law, asked exactly the same question about two weeks ago. Show me the rule. What rule have they violated? No, no. This is the sort of other strategy as opposed to packing the court. This is the strategy of slenderizing the court to try to force out uh, some of the justices, the conservative justices, um, by require, by insisting that they recuse themselves from certain cases so as to thin out the conservative majority. I'm sorry, but I'm very cynical about these accusations. Um, I have no problem with a fair and free press investigating um, members of the Supreme Court, just as they should investigate the White House, though they don't, or, or Congress, like Nancy Pelosi, though they don't. Um, but this is this is well beyond a fair, objective analysis of what the justices have done. It's a smear campaign. It's designed to punish them for their decision in Dobbs and to intimidate them in future cases, period. It's as simple as that. What are your thoughts on the future of the court? Not so much as in terms of its makeup, conservative or liberal or decisions that are coming down the pike, but the politicization of the court, um, uh, suggestions that are being made by politicians about how to influence the future direction of the court. Your thoughts on uh, on the politicization in, in terms of of uh, how the court should be viewed and allowed to function. Uh, the court is best left to itself to police itself. It is on, these look all nine of them are honest, honorable, smart, hardworking people. They have different views. Great. There are 340 million Americans. We all have different views. They reflect that. Uh, I think it's a question of public trust and public confidence. And I think we ought to have more trust and more confidence in these men and women because they're fine people. Uh, and they, their independence, their freedom from politics should not be compromised. It is extremely dangerous for all of us if they are supposed to track the polls or listen to what some senator is saying. No. They have life tenure. 
as long as they have good behavior. They can be removed by impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors, but that is it. They are a co-equal branch on the same level as the president or Congress, and the president and Congress should they're free to criticize the court. Of course they are, and it's decisions. But they should not do what is happening now, which is to make this a political struggle. The court is not in that game. Do you expect the, confirm- the confirmation process to, to change, to reflect that? Or will it continue to be a political circus as it has increasingly become? It will gradually change because with its conservative majority, the court is getting out of areas where it had no business to be in the first place. Uh, There won't be a controversy over where the court should go on Roe versus Wade any longer because Roe is not on the books and it's not going to be resuscitated. So I hope that as the court gradually steps further and further away from the policymaking arena and confines itself more and more strictly to law, nominations will become less controversial. Well, one certainly looks forward to that. Again, the politically mm. incorrect guide to the Supreme Court. On the cover, William Howard Taft is uh, uh, is quoted, presidents come and go, but the Supreme Court goes on forever. And that certainly uh, seems to be the case. Are you optimistic about the future, uh, not just of the Supreme Court as it functions, because it will, but that the American people, perhaps through uh, guides like this one, will better understand what to expect from the court and have uh, less fury about how it functions in making major decisions. Look, I'm a conservative, and I have been since I was a child, and that makes me pessimistic about the future, about <laughs> everything. It sort of goes with the territory. But, you know, whatever may happen to our wonderful country and its institutions, and in my 76 years, they have changed a lot, some ways very much of the better, other ways not so good. Uh, I'm going to stand and fight um, for what I believe in and what I think this country ought to be. Even if I lose, I lose. At least I'm going down with all guns blazing. There you go. Well, Robert Delahunty, thank you so much for the book, along with your co-author, John Yu, and for talking with us here today. Appreciate it very much. I do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today.